You are listening to the Teaching Little Brains podcast with Sarah Nickaruk, episode 13. Hello, Teacher Brain. Thank you for joining me today. I want to start by saying how grateful and fortunate I am to already have such amazing supporters and listeners. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being one of them. This week, I want to give a shout out to BK1N9. That's their handle. (laughs) So for your five-star review saying that, um, quote, this is some really cool and interesting stuff. Wish I had learned this in school. So thank you, BK1N9. Um, This is actually, in fact, the whole reason I started teaching Little Brains because I found myself saying the same thing that I wish I had learned this in school. And so many people I've shared this with echo that sentiment. So I super appreciate your taking the time to leave me a rating and review. Thank you. And if you haven't yet, please take a second to subscribe to the podcast, share it with someone you think would enjoy it also. And if you have an extra second, I do really appreciate um, your reviews. So thank you. All right, let's dive in. Let me ask you a question. A notification pops up from your dentist that you have an appointment the next day. What do you do that night? Something you probably haven't done since the week after your last appointment six months ago when you swore up and down that you would be better at remembering this time. Floss, right? Yeah, even though you know you should, maybe like me, you set your floss out on the counter so you won't forget, what happens? Every time I'm with you. Why do we do that? Maybe because flossing sucks? (laughs) I don't know. It's uncomfortable to the gums, which often bleed if you're anything like me. You never cut the right length of piece of floss. It's always either too short to hold on to or way too long to do your whole mouth. By the time you're done, your fingers are purple because you've got like floss wound so tightly around them that you've cut off all circulation. Then you have to wipe down the mirror after because you've launched bits of that white stuff all over it. What is that stuff anyway? Plus, there's like zero gratification for flossing. There's no visible difference in your mouth except for the blood pouring out of it. (laughs) And your gums are throbbing. And for what? Okay, granted, if you don't do it, you end up with cavities, gingivitis, your teeth could fall out. You can develop gum disease. Okay, admittedly, actually, that's pretty bad. So there are actually studies that link gum disease to other issues like heart disease, Alzheimer's, and diabetes. So yeah, I guess it's important. But how about this one? Dental health and mental health are oh so similar. Can you think of how? So let me ask you this other question. What does mental health even mean to you? The other day I was scrolling through Facebook and I came across a post from a very dear fellow teacher friend of mine, Carly Lois. And I'm telling you her name on purpose because you need to remember it. And in it, Carly was sharing about a conversation she had with a friend of hers. Um, The post read, I was talking with a friend the other day and she mentioned that she felt that her mental health was declining during COVID-19. This made her feel really nervous and unsettled. It felt really bad to her, really wrong. I was curious to know what she meant when she said her mental health was declining. We hear the terms mental health so often and used in many different contexts and I wanted to know exactly what it meant to her. She said it felt this way because she wasn't holding it together. She was crying a lot, 
feeling really frustrated and unhappy. She sometimes spent her evenings crying in bed because of how sad she was. She also felt she wasn't coping well with her work because she was constantly upset and angry and felt that she was falling behind because she couldn't keep her emotional state in check. Overall, she was really sad and this was why she believed her mental, mental health was declining. I was grateful to her for opening up and sharing what she was experiencing. I found it super interesting to hear what decline in mental health meant to her. As I listened to her, I felt that it was quite likely that many people could relate to her in that moment. She missed her friends and family, felt very alone, and really wanted her life to go back to the way it was before. She was sad. She was angry. She was upset. She was experiencing some negative emotions based on her thoughts. That, to me, doesn't mean ment her mental health is declining. After our chat, I began to think about what mental health means to me. I decided it means being able to allow and process all emotions that are part of being a human being. It means feeling sad, disappointed, and angry, and allowing those emotions without making it mean something is wrong with me or that I am not being strong enough or good enough. It means feeling happiness, joy, and confidence one day and fear, anxiety, and sadness the next. It's all about opening up to the ups and downs of life, accepting it for what it is, feeling all the feels. That's what mental health means to me. What mental, he mental health doesn't mean is always being strong and holding in the tears. It doesn't mean never fighting with those we love, always being positive and never unhappy. It isn't about being super proactive and productive all the time and never missing a deadline at work because you are struggling with something. And it doesn't mean your mental health is declining if you yell at your children when they don't do as they're told and then you spend the night crying about it. These things, these emotions are all part of being a human being and they will always be a part of our lives. Our human lives are 50-50. 50% positive and 50% negative, and that's actually a beautiful thing. Why? Because sometimes we want to feel sad, angry, or upset about the things that are happening in the world, and sometimes we want to feel happy and joyful. That's life. Some moments we are up and some we are down, like a roller coaster. In my opinion, a decline in mental health is the fighting against and resisting of negative emotions over time. It's the fighting against our emotions and not allowing ourselves to feel. It's that resistance that over time will create a decline in mental health. Because when we resist our negative emotions and make them mean something bad, we compound the experience and make it much worse. Much, much worse. We actually create pain on top of our pain. But when we can get to a place where we accept our human lives for what they are and allow ourselves to feel all of it and never, never, ever make it something make it mean something is wrong with us then we have hit the jackpot here's to living the 50 50 human life my friends love you all xo carly always has such an eloquent way of articulating her thoughts and offers a wonderful perspective she stretches my mind to and sometimes beyond its edges every time we connect and her energy calms and invigorates me all at once and in reading this post, I could certainly relate to many of the points she raised. But one thing in particular stood out to me in relation to my work with Teaching Little Brains, and that was about life being 50% positive emotion and 50% negative, and that being, that being a beautiful thing. 
So I reread her words about what mental health is to her and that it means being able to allow and process all the emotions that are part of being a human being. It means feeling sad, disappointed, and angry and allowing those emotions without making it mean something is wrong with me or that I'm not being strong enough or good enough. And that it doesn't mean always being strong, holding in the tears. It doesn't mean never fighting with those we love, always being positive and never unhappy. It's not about being super productive and Um, proactive all the time and never missing a deadline at work because you were struggling with something and it doesn't mean your mental health is declining if you yell at your children while they when they don't do as they're told and then you spend the night crying about it wow particularly as we enter mental health awareness week this week and particularly particularly as we're working on our own mental health in this time of COVID-19 either consciously or subconsciously those words struck home for me Embracing all of our feelings and not making them mean something about us. That's a biggie. It reminded me of a boy that uh, in one of the grade one classes I coached last year, who whenever he got frustrated, he would bolt out of the classroom, claiming he was stupid and banging his head with his hands. So one day I was closest to the door when he made his run for it. So I followed him. He went down the hall and slid under a table by the front door. So I sat with him quietly as he mumbled about how stupid he was and how he couldn't do anything right. And in the moment, of course, my instinct was to argue with him, to deny his claims and reassure him that he in fact was not stupid, to offer him like a laundry list of evidence of all the very clever things that he had done even in the short couple weeks that I had been in the classroom. But even though my journey into the world of neuroscience and neuropsychology had just begun, I had already learned that resisting emotions and thoughts only serves to perpetuate them. What you resist persists, as they say in the biz. Plus, he was in fight or flight mode already, and I knew that it was not the time for a calm discussion. And I certainly didn't want to escalate the situation or perpetuate his sad and false beliefs. Also, that cartoon of Winnie the Pooh and Piglet came to mind. You know, the one where Piglet is sad, so like, why is Winnie just sits with him in silence? So that's what I did. I just sat with him silently until his little brain stopped berating him. He calmed his breathing and his forehead softened. Of course, he had a safety plan, so a protocol, a string of actions that were to be carried out whenever this occurred. But it sat with me in my subconscious for so long. And it was probably the true catalyst for where we're heading with teaching little brains as I started learning more and more about the brain and how it works. My, if you remember this, reticular activating system, the bodyguard in your brain, really kicked in. And I started really noticing more and more incidences of students losing it or flying off the handle or even just like staring with deadpan eyes as we imparted our knowledge unto them. Um, I started seeing evidence of struggle, disengagement, actual decline in mental health, as Carly puts it, like a lack of ability to embrace, heck, even feel, never mind manage, their negative emotions. And so the more I thought about how our responses to these types of incidences focus mostly on the action part of the model and not so much on the thought, emotion, belief, identity parts, I began pursuing more and more opportunities for training, research, personal development to figure out how we could get this crucial learning into our schools and classroom. And Jim Quick's three central questions kept replaying in my mind. How can I use this? Why must I use this? When will I use this? 
and the answer was clear. Last week, I chatted with Christina Bothmer, who was just a truly amazing human being and fabulous teacher in Halton, who lives and breathes mindfulness in her life and in her teaching practice as a means to improve the mental health of the little brains in her classroom and herself. And if you missed that episode, remember to go back and listen to it after this one. Um, Christina's actually going to be coming into Teaching Little Brains inside the teacher membership I'm working on for you, and I'm really excited about that. Um, I believe the practice of mindfulness is a valuable tool for helping our, our brain and the little brains in our classroom and homes um, develop their mental health. So by mindfulness, I'm referring to the ability to be fully present, uh, aware of where we are, what is around us and what we're doing, thinking and feeling, um, often engaging our five senses without being overly reactive or overwhelmed by what is going on around us. So it helps us put some space between ourselves and our reactions, um, breaking down our conditioned response. The goal of mindfulness is to bring your awareness to the present without judgment. Whenever you bring your awareness to what you're directly experiencing via your senses or to your state of mind via your thoughts and emotions, you're being mindful. And there's growing research showing that when you train your brain to be mindful, you're actually remodeling the physical structures of your brain, which you know I love. So set aside some time. You don't need a meditation cushion or bench or any sort of special equipment um, to access your mindfulness skills. But you, you do need to set aside some time and space. You need to observe the present moment as it is. So the aim of mindfulness is not quieting the mind or attempting to achieve a state of eternal calm. The goal is simple. So we're aiming to pay attention to the present moment without judgment. And I know that's the hard part. Let your judgment roll by. When you notice judgments arise during your practice, make mental notes of them and then let them pass. And you'll recognize judgments. They come in the form of like should, should not, um, either about yourself or other people and why am I thinking that what kind of person am I all those kinds of things are all judgments about your thoughts so we're trying to not have those Um, then return if you do notice that return to observing the present moment as it is focus on your senses our minds often get carried away in in thought and that's why mindfulness is the practice of returning again and again to the present moment Be kind to your wandering mind. Don't judge yourself for whatever thoughts crop up. Just practice recognizing when your mind has wandered off and gently bring it back. Simple, but not easy, I know. In episode 12, Christina shared some of her her tips and favorite resources with us about how we can practice mindfulness because it is something we need to practice on a regular basis, like flossing. And like flossing, it is not something we can do the night before and the week after our biannual dentist appointment. You don't just practice mindfulness um, before a test or when things are stressful. It's got to be a regular basis. And also like flossing, it is a preventative health measure and one that can be uncomfortable at times and hard to remember to do. Like I said, I leave my dental floss right next to my toothbrush holder and I still forget to floss my damn teeth more often than not. And as we discussed earlier, it's one of those things that you don't see the benefits of until much later, often when it's too late and there's a serious problem. 
So while it may seem tricky or even forced at first, stick with it because the benefits will compound and the consequences of not taking care of your dental or mental health are dire. And as I mentioned, this coming week is Mental Health Awareness Week, at least in Canada. And there are a lot of resources and activities out there to help support yourself and your family, your students and their families. Um, I've linked in the show notes to the Canadian Mental Health Week website for details and information. Also, Carly Lois is a newly certified life coach and someone with whom I have been collaborating around our shared vision of improving mental health in schools. Um, We are also going to be joining forces inside the upcoming Teaching Little Brains membership. Um, Right now, Carly is offering free coaching sessions. Her contact information is linked in the show notes as well. Just make sure you get in fast because they certainly won't last. Um, She only has a few spots left, but she'll change your mind in a good way. Tell her I sent you. Um, It's been seven weeks now since we were instructed to stay home, practice quote unquote social distancing or self-isolation. And I know that many people are feeling many different things through this period. Some people are feeling inspired and creative. Some are feeling scared, confused and anxious. Others are relieved, embracing the space and time to themselves. And still others are struggling to make it through some days. And many people are feeling a range and combination of these emotions. Remember 50-50. No matter what you may be feeling, I hope you at least know that it is okay. It is okay if you are feeling scared, confused and anxious or not, it doesn't mean something is wrong with you. In fact, it doesn't mean anything about you at all, except that you are a human with a functioning brain. Remember, notice with curiosity and fascination and without judgment. So get outside, practice mindfulness, write in your gratitude journal, get some exercise, call a friend or family member, contact Carly Lois, read a book, watch a movie or two or five, get dressed up, enjoy your favorite treat, listen to some music, dance, bake if you like that kind of thing, do some yoga, listen to your favorite podcast, floss your teeth, take care of your mental health. I'd love to hear what uh, you do to celebrate Mental Health Awareness Week. So please tag me on Instagram at teaching.little.brains or Facebook at Teaching Little Brains with your activities and practices. Thank you so very much for listening once again to the Teaching Little Brains podcast. I am your host, Sarah Nickrock. Have a wonderful week. Bye for now.